0: Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm your host, Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. On today's episode, I talk to Morgan Spurlock. He burst upon the scene in 2004 with his film Supersize Me, in which he ate nothing but McDonald's for a month. After that film, he formed the company Warrior Poets with producer Jeremy Chilnick. Their latest film is called Rats, based on Robert Sullivan's book. Unlike many of Morgan's previous projects, he doesn't appear in this one. Instead, center stage is given to New York City exterminator Ed Sheehan. The film also travels to other locales, including Cambodia, to follow the economy of rat-catching, and to Rajasthan, India, where rats are celebrated at a temple. Rats was conceived to fit the genre of horror as much as documentary. The film plays on the Discovery Channel starting October 22nd. Its world premiere took place in September at the Toronto International Film Festival in the Midnight Madness section. The next morning, I sat down with Morgan Spurlock and Jeremy Chilnick. I started by asking
1: Morgan where he was in his career before Supersize Me. Before Supersize Me, I had a production company. We, uh, we were actually started off as a web company. In the I started a company called the Interactive Consortium, terrible name, right in the middle of the tech boom. And the whole idea when I was raising money for this in 1999 was we wanted to create a company where we could put programming online, short-form content that we would then seed, uh, pilot it, if you will, and then springboard it off to film or television. Something like is happening all over now. And we, the first show we launched, we were able to raise two hundred fifty thousand dollars for the company. We were trying to raise millions. Then the bubble burst in like March of two thousand. You know, nobody, all the tech money dried up. But I had one guy um, named Marty Garvey who still wrote me a check for two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and uh, and so we took that money to create our first show. And game shows had just hit in America. Like the the number one show in the United States was Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. And it went from one night a week to two nights a week to five nights a week. Like suddenly this one show blew up and I was like, we need to do a game show. That's the show we should make. So we created a show online called I Bet You Will. What's your name? Come here, Christy. Okay. Christy's from Big Sky Country. She's from Montana. Now she's in Big Money Country here at I Bet You Will with extra. And we've got a big bet for some big cash for you, all right? It depends on what I got to (laughs) do. I will pay you $100 cash for every jar of I Bet You Will brand rotten yogurt you let me pour all over your body. I've got three jars, so for each jar it'll be 100 bucks that exploded online. Within the, the the first day, we had a million unique views on the site. It was crashing like crazy. By Friday, we had five million views. By the second week, CBS called and said, we want to buy the show. And I was like, oh my God, look how easy this is. Everything everything that we'd said we were going to do with this company is happening right now. We ended up selling the show to MTV. Um, CBS sat on it for months. And while they sat on it, all these big giant shows came out. Survivor, Big Brother, Fear Factor in the Fall. And I was like, that's what we should be making, I bet you will, as, you know, it should be like that show, but huge. They didn't wanna do it. We got the show back, sold it to MTV, ended up doing 53 episodes of the show for them. Uh, and then when they canceled the show in October, 2002, um, I had about $50,000 in the bank. And I said, we should take that money and we should make feels it. feels like you should have had more money in the bank after doing uh, a whole year well, of shows. Well, <laughs> well, because well, here's the whole thing is what I didn't tell you in the story. Is, so while we, when, while we were sitting on the show when we sold it to CBS, 9-11 happened. So production kind of stopped in New York City, everything stopped. And to keep my company going, I just started taking out credit. And I started taking out credit cards. And so I started paying employees with credit cards. I started paying bills with credit cards. I started paying credit cards with credit cards. And in a period of about a year and a half, um, I amassed about a quarter of a million dollars in credit card debt. And so, and but I still had an office. Like I was evicted from my apartment. I was sleeping in a hammock in my office, but I still had an office. So I was like, we're not dead yet. I still got this one thing that I was hanging on to. We've got MTV who's saying, we're gonna make the show at some point. Finally, in the spring of 2002, uh, they said, let's move forward, we want to make the show, and then we want to do 53 episodes of that show. So I paid off about $50,000 worth of the debt during production of that show. And then when it was canceled, we had another 50. And I said, well, I could either pour this $50,000 into that bottomless pit of debt,
2: Hmm.
1: or we could make a movie, because that was logical. And that movie ended up being Supersize Me. There are rules to what's going on here in this whole process. I will only supersize it if they ask me, and I can only eat things that are for sale over the counter at McDonald's. Water included. If McDonald's doesn't sell it, I can't eat it. I have to have everything on the menu at least once over the next 30 days, and I have to have three squares a day. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. No excuses. Oh, I love Big Macs. See, this this is probably the first time in a long time that I've actually seen a Big Mac that looks like the picture. That actually almost looks like the picture. Look at that. Big Macs never look this good. You got to come to Chinatown
0: for the good Big Macs. Before the world saw Supersize Me, yeah. you'd complete this film. You, you, you've got debt more than anything in your life at that point. you I had you've, a lot of debt. Yeah, <laughs> and maybe chutzpah. Maybe yeah. your Spot <laughs> <is> slightly is <laughs> ahead of your debt. What were your expectations uh,
1: going into the Sundance Film Festival? Uh, well, but we, we got to go back before we got into Sundance, because I was still with John. John Sloss was my lawyer and was our sales agent for the film. And I love John Sloss because John Sloss is a spectacular manager of expectations. That is, if John is anything, that is what he does a great job of doing for filmmakers. And so we'd finish the film, we'd submit it to Sundance, We didn't know what was going to happen with the movie, didn't know if we were going to get in. And John's like, yeah, maybe you'll be able to sell this to TV because I don't know who's really going to buy this film, what's going to happen. Then the movie got into Sundance and John Sloss calls me up and he goes, this is going to be huge. This is going to be so great. So I didn't know. But when I tell you what happened when before we went to Sundance in the beginning of, or beginning of December, there was a, a cartoon that somebody sent me from the park record where the lunar lander the, or the Mars rover had just landed on Mars. And so there was a cartoon of a Mars rover and a Martian coming up to the Mars Rover saying, hey, I'll show you some really cool Martian, you know, Martian rocks if you can get me tickets to supersize me. And that was a cartoon in the paper that somebody says, I don't know if you saw this. And I was like, that's amazing. I just got chills telling you that story because people were like, the movie sold out so fast. Everybody's talking about it. So at that point, we we thought we, had, that we, thought we were gonna have a great experience, but we had no idea what was gonna happen. Seems like pretty quickly
0: uh, you went from being uh, a guy in debt that no one would recognize on the streets to being a, a public personality. Yeah, what was that shift
1: like? Well, th- there was a and I'll put it in the context of the Sundance Film Festival because there was a there was an amazing moment when uh, James Rocky, the the journalist, the, the film reviewer, was at the festival and for years like every other filmmaker who had watched the Sundance Film Festival i watched people's lives be transformed by this amazing festival you know whether it's kevin smith or at smith. least that's
0: the two stories that would get told and then the other 98 people whose that's lives right. <laughs> did not
1: yeah <laughs> but it's a but it's like so every year i would well, you know you'd see these people like kevin smith or or quentin tarantino or you know whomever these people that would come to sundance with these little tiny movies that would be transformative and so i'm at the i'm at the i'm at a party and james rocky comes up to me and he goes so how does it feel and I'm like, what are you talking about?" He goes, he goes, "How does it feel to be the belle of the ball?" He goes, he goes, uh, he goes this is this is your sundance." And at that moment, I was like, "Holy shit, like I'm that guy. I'm Cinderella. I am the person whose life's never going to be the same after this festival. And it wasn't. It was incredible, and is that all positive? Is there any downside to that? No, I mean, it was it was i listen. i had a, i have a, I had a great group of people and and great, great group of supportive group of friends and family. And I think that it could have been spectacularly overwhelming, um, but it wasn't. Um, uh, my wife was uh, incredibly uh, wonderful and in, like just keeping me grounded through that whole process. And I think just having having people around who were just just as excited about everything that's happening as I was 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 wonderful. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, because that was the other thing. Those that, that was one thing I'll, I'll add to that is that part of what was so special about so the so the whole time we were making the movie, nobody was getting paid. And so we had about 25, 26 people who were working at my company and who were working on this movie at the time who weren't getting paid because we didn't have any money. And we made this supersize me for sixty five grand. So the minute we got into Sundance, like I cashed in an annuity that my grandmother had that she had been saving money for me. It was like $50,000 so that one, I could finish the film. And then two, I took every single person who worked on the movie to Sundance. I flew 27 people to Sundance for the movie. And I said, we all have to experience this together. And we all went. We rented a house. It was it was special in, in every sense of the word. I think. There- there's
0: a perception after that that Size me is a big success that, yeah. you know, you read figures of how much it made at the box office. And yeah. was that transformative or was that a
1: lot of money going into other people's pockets? A lot of money going into other people's pockets. Um, I mean, it made money. We paid off all my debt. Everybody who worked at my company because because people hadn't gotten paid in so long. We paid people. I paid everybody in my company like three between three and four years of back salary. So everybody, the company was making anywhere between 150 and $400,000, depending on who they were. So, I mean, I could have made a lot more money personally, but I felt it was much more important for me to do right to all the people who'd been there for so long. And that, and we started a new company with Jeremy, my partner, who's sitting here with me. We started Warrior Poets. I didn't go buy a boat. I didn't go like get a get a big get a swank Ferrari or anything like that. Which uh, you know maybe in hindsight I should have, but I didn't. <laughs> and um, but it was it was one of those where I think we we put the money that we made from that in a good place. And it's one of those money it's one of those movies that still makes money. Like we still get checks for that movie, which is remarkable. So,
0: can we just insert a disclaimer f- right now for any filmmaker listening to this to not try that at home?
1: Yeah, do not try that. Well, there's been plenty of people who've done done movies like that in the past. So, uh, I'm sorry for, for for encouraging this. Yeah. So, Jeremy, tell me when you
0: entered the picture. What was your ambitions to to, to do out of that success?
3: Well, I started working Morgan at the tail end of Super Size Me, like fall 2004. Fall 2004. I mean, the amazing thing I think also about. When I look back about Supersize Me and Morgan, celebrity kind of grew slowly like cuz as 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 big as a success as Super Size Me was in the theaters it's still you know it really proliferated once it's on DVD and once it's on uh home video so success like as much as it was immediate also kind of had this gradual longer tail which now like everything is kind of like a movie is a success immediately or a movie is not a success mm-hmm. you know there's no it's it feels like it's it's much more binary now than when you know things could really gradually you know, get some legs underneath them. But my personal ambition was, you know, it sounds cliche, but I really wanted to tell stories and it was the Bush years. And, you know, I don't know if I would have been as attracted to nonfiction and to documentaries as a whole if that wasn't going on, but it felt like at the time documentaries were kind of the only voice that was speaking for things that, you know, you would read and you would feel because, you know, what was mainstream media at the time was so pervasive in this kind of one narrative. And I was very lucky. I uh, got onto the elevator just as it was uh, starting <laughs> to uh, slowly ascend. And, uh, you know, uh, I haven't gotten
0: off yet. We'll be back in a minute to talk rats with Morgan Spurlock and Jeremy Chilnick. Remember to mark your calendars for Doc NYC, America's largest documentary festival, taking place November 10th to 17th in New York City. The full lineup has been announced with over 250 films and events and over 300 special guests. For documentary professionals, check out Doc NYC Pro eight days of panels, masterclasses, and happy hours. Speakers include Citizen Four director Laura Poitras and Black Panthers director Stanley Nelson. To learn more about getting a pass or tickets, go to docnyc.net. Now let's return to Morgan Spurlock and Jeremy Chilnick. Here's a clip from Rats that evokes the eerie qualities that make it fitting for Halloween season. We will try and solve the rat problem. Molly's knock it down. I'm not trying to justify going out with the dogs and doing it, but where do you stop? Go, go,
2: go! go, go. it's gonna run. It's gonna run. <laughs>
0: Do
2: you stop
0: a spider getting a fly and kill all spiders? Not, not? It's the same thing. And, and what drew you to horror as a genre? It's like trying to make a horror documentary, which there's not that many examples. In fact, I can't really think of one.
1: Yeah. Well, I can think of one. <laughs> it premiered last night at midnight. And it was uh <laughs> no, the... The, the, the idea behind it I mean it's ever since I was a kid I loved horror films like when I was 10 years old I went to see Scanners in the movie theater and when Michael Ironside made that guy's head explode it changed my life forever because that was the moment that made me want to make movies like that just that one cinematic moment I was like oh my god that's incredible um, I got to meet Cronenberg yesterday and gush all over him when and tell him you know how transformative that was for me and he goes I hope in a good way and I was like no it was it was very good but it's I've just I've always loved horror films I love the way they make you feel I love how uncomfortable they make you uh, they make you squirm in a little in a little just uh, you know edgy on the edge of your seat and i said if we can make a doc that plays into that in that space plays into that negative space of tension and of of fear of of kind of uh i think excitement then then we'd be doing something really cool and i I think we pulled it off what came first was it the idea that you want to make a horror film or rats as a concept brought to you or well we wanted we talked about making a horror film for a long time and and just what would that be and you know and because I've been going down the path of making a narrative feature a couple different times, and I was like, do I want a horror film to be the first narrative feature I make, or do we want to do something else? And it, I didn't really want it to be, because my fear was that suddenly I'm the guy who makes horror films, and that's I didn't want to kind of just be painted into that corner. So then when Josh Braun, our friend Josh Braun, who optioned the book, Rats, with uh, with his brother Dan, David Coe, and Stanley Buckthal, he said, what do you think about making this? And I read it, and I was like, that's what we should do. Let's make this into a horror movie um, but shoot it like a doc, but also shoot it like a horror film so and score like a horror film and make it dark and weird like a horror film. And it's it's awesome.
0: So the obvious immediate challenge to rats is there's there's not a story there. There's not a beginning, middle and end. So yeah. what was your approach to, you know, there's
3: there's great source material in the book. But at the end of the day, the book is it's much more historical. It's much more historical. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of a, a bit opposed to what, you know, our overall vision was. But I think we start started with, um, you know, Morgan had a great, uh, you know, in our first meeting like, you know, who are our characters, who's our Quint, you know, who's our, who's, you know, who's our uh, Richard Dreyfus character from Jaws. <laughs> um, and we kind of, you know, just really like brainstormed out, like, in the perfect world, and we do this with most of our movies, what would it be like in the perfect world? And then you start cheating and it totally changes. Um, But we started rooting in good characters. And then the next thing was, well, how do we get all around the world? Because to keep it in New York, the film starts feeling very insular. And ultimately, it doesn't have a lot of places to go Mm because the end result is there are a lot of rats in New York City, you know? And and you don't have much to go past there. But we started with who's one or two or three characters we can ground this in to at least get us started. And then you start researching what are the most f-ed up stories about rats, you know, around the world? And then and you, luckily there's a lot. And luckily there's <laughs> yeah. a lot, you know. And then you see which ones can kind of fit into this vision that you know Morgan has in terms of you know what makes it horror and you know what's going to be scary about it. Um, so and we had a great, great um, you know main character in this amazing, amazing uh, rat exterminator uh, Ed Sheeran, who uh, you know you, you couldn't write a better. What do you want? Want like the New York exterminator to be who's <laughs> seen it like all for like. forty years and sounded all and smoked cigars all the time, and we have him smoking cigars in the interview.
2: Rats are very intelligent, more intelligent than I think we give them credit for. However, you kill them, you kill them. But for every action on our part, there's a reaction on their part. They're observant. They know the area. They're always alert about what's going on. Listen, they're scary. But I got to respect them. You know, after almost 50
0: years, they jump out. I'm jumping back. Now, did Ed Sheehan present himself early on, or did you do a casting call for several different exterminators? We
1: started looking. We started put. We kind of put the we put the call out to it. We were, we were chasing exterminators around New York City, just saying we're looking for somebody who's kind of the quintessential New York exterminator, the guy who's been doing this for decades. And everybody's like, "Oh, you got to call Ed Sheehan. Like, if you if you're looking for that, you got to call Ed." Like, so many people were pointing us towards him, and so then we called Ed, and that's like, "What do you want from me?" I was Like, we want to make a movie. He goes, "What? What, what for? What, what's this? What's this about?" Like, so it's like we had to convince him to do it, but then one. Once we got in, kind of his good graces, he's phenomenal because he is. He's Quint. He's he's the guy on the boat who's like, you know, five hundred men jumped in the water that day. It's like he's like he's got this great gruff voice. He's he's a natural storyteller, and he becomes our crypt keeper essentially over the course of the film. Like he's the guy who helps take us in and out of stories through his his dark stories and kind of his look at the the world and of rats in a very specific way. It's great. So you do
0: go to many different places uh, in the world uh, to film different crazy rat stories. I mean, in my mind, I imagine that you probably have a team of researchers who will scope out, you know, here's a story in India, here's a story in Cambodia, prepare you, and then set you on a plane to uh, to go do it. And I imagine when you're arriving in these places, you you've got a limited amount of time to get that story. Can you walk me through like what your planning is? Like, you know, how do you drop down in a place you've never been before
1: and get what you need? Yeah, I mean, well, usually we do start, as you said, with our with our team of of producers on the film so there's a uh, myself jeremy susan hill suzanne hillinger who's another producer on the film and then our aps who they're basically doing exactly the research that like what are the greatest rat stories we can find we whittle that down then we start reaching out to the people seeing if there's a there there, skyping with them talking to them on the phone whittle it down even more maybe have them you know get a fixer on the ground who goes out and just does some shooting to show us what the characters look like because it's a big it's a big it's a big burden to spend money to go on a fishing expedition if you don't know you're going to get there and actually get something. So having somebody in advance just do a little shooting with like their phone or even another camera just so we can see it. And so we can like, that's cinematic, that's great. Uh, the, those are good characters. So that then when we get there, we've already kind of, we've ticked off nine out of 10 boxes of what we know we want to accomplish. You know, you never get everything because you, especially with documentaries, you never know what you're going to get until you get there. But a lot of it is is done very much in advance and with like really reliable people on the ground. I mean, we were really lucky. We had some great fixers all over the world that kind of came in and and helped us see this through. What the complexities of this film were in
3: particular is because we've made the commitment that it needs to be a horror film, that takes a whole nother level of planning. So even, you know, we're shooting with, big camera systems, um, you know, on the ground in most places, and you want to set up, you know, you want to have good setup, and Morgan and I were talking about this earlier today, like a lot of what makes horror films, horror films, and is the tension, and it's what you're not seeing, and what are you preparing to see, and so that was a whole different kind of level of complexities, you know, and then in addition, you still have to wait for the rats to either come out or not come out, for the rat catchers to either catch the rats or not catch the rats, Um, but it's, you know, I think those challenges are what makes doing a movie like this so exciting. So. What, what what
0: is what kind of rat wrangling took place in this film?
1: There's 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 some rat wrangling where we did some real intimate shots with rats, um, like in apartments and kind of underground. You know, there were those moments in the beginning of the film when we were going out and shooting in New York City with Ed and some other characters, where we weren't seeing any rats. And I was like, I was like, I tell you, I, so Jeremy had a conversation. <laughs> Jeremy and Suzanne and myself and were like. We've got a rat movie with not a lot of rats right now. It's like we got to we got to figure this out. Like, we got to we got to go find some rats, and uh, and we we basically uh, we were making sure that wherever we were going out to shoot, we were like really in the rattiest of ratty places that we could find. Otherwise, we were gonna have a, a rat movie with no stars,
3: no subjects. Yeah, <laughs> it was uh, literally the first like I'd say first seven days of shooting. There's like a lot of shooting on you know yeah. movies. They don't have a lot of budget like. Very, very few rats. We had a rat carcass and it was like, Eureka, we're so close. (laughs) That's right.
2: That's right.
1: So, uh, So what did it take to get the rats out? Well, it took us just being smart about where we were going location-wise. That was one. Um, certain times when we were shooting was the other because we were shooting at times that weren't prime rat times. Prime rat times are early in the morning or like dusk in the evening because that's when they're usually coming out for food. And so we just we made sure that now we started having our blocks when we were going to our ratty parts of town and our ratty areas that were in like kind of prime prime rat hunting time. You use a lot of visual tricks
0: to, to capture these rats. You have images of rats running through pipes. Uh, can, can you talk about some of the, the gear that you were using? Uh, can we geek out for a moment on yeah. your film gear? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, the film was shot, about 90%
3: of it shot on Alexa Mini with uh, really beautiful old primes. We have a wonderful director of photography, um, Luca Del Papo, who is a uh, I think he's a genius. He's a prompt um, talent. That
1: guy is so good.
3: Yeah, but he, uh, we started working with him on our Showtime series, Seven Deadly Sins. So, but he, you know, he comes from—he's like an AFI guy and like really comes from a totally non-documentary world, and that's what we wanted to bring into this film. But um, it's a lot of telescopic lenses. Um, you know, we had. Uh, I, I don't know if there's another term for this, like a colonoscopy cam it's like and a and, and, and it's like, cam. It's like, me. It's, it doesn't have to just go. Yeah, back, it's but like yeah, it, yeah it's it's,
1: it is a, it's a giant phallus lens that is about you know two feet long, like a snoot lens yeah. that enables you to go into the rat holes and into the burrows, and it's it it creates such this claustrophobic experience because of the, how it can go into things um, in a non-sexual way what we loved about it is it just created a much more rat pov and part of what we want to do is have that kind of also set the tone for us like if you watch the film there's a lot of really low angles a lot of rat pov shots taking us into the burrows and into their worlds in a in a very i think dark way um and then we when we went in the way that some of those were were shot was enabled us to have just enough light to where you could see but not enough to where you could see everything which i think It's As we talked about earlier, the thing that you love about horror films is what you don't see most of the time that makes things even scarier. Did you have
0: to make a decision at some point whether you're making rats as your villain or whether
1: you're going to try to evoke some sympathy for rats? This is a conversation that we had as as we continue to put the movie together. We were like, we need something sympathetic. Like We need something in there. That isn't all just about how terrible rats are because first off, I'll be—I will say rats are terrible. Like they carry a lot of disease, they—they they have the ability to infect and, and hurt a lot of people. I mean, they—they they are essentially what are—they're almost like parasites within our society. They live more off of us than we need them, but. Uh, so we said, but there there are things like we have a lot of scientists in the film who do a lot of research to talk about the benefits of of rats and what they show us about society at large. But we said there has to be something else. And that was kind of where the rat temple came in. Once we knew we were shooting in India, I said, we should probably just go and spend a day at the rat temple and shoot there. And if you're making a film about rats, that's right. got to go to the rat and so, table. So we, so, and it's one of the things where I'm so glad, it was it was tacked on at the end. It was one of those, we were going to shoot the Night Rat Killers in Mumbai, which are a group of guys that go out every night armed with basically just like a burlap sack and a stick and a flashlight and a net. These guys actually carry a net as well. And they go out and just whack rats with sticks, break their necks, put them in a bag. If they kill 30, 30 rats a night, they get five bucks essentially and it's an incredible story um, i'd seen some raw footage on the news of them a while back and i said we have to go shoot there and then once we were going halfway around the world i was like well, we we may as well tack on another day and go to the temple and thank goodness we did because i think there's it really creates that magical sympathetic thing that you're just talking about that i think the film really needed and so for people who haven't seen the film yet describe what goes on at the rat temple the rat temple is is a temple where they worship the rats that are there. There's about 35,000 rats in this temple that live, breed, continue to breed. But the belief is, it's a Hindu temple, the belief is that when we die as humans, we come back as rats. So these rats are their relatives. So they go there, they feed them, they hang out with them, they play with them, they sleep with them. So there's people that are like laying there with rats all over them. They're drinking out of these giant bowls of milk that the rats drink out of and defecate in and everything else. And like these guys, they'll just come and drink milk out of these giant bowls. It is, uh, it's one of the things that will make you incredibly uncomfortable, but simultaneously you're like, at least there's one woman says, this is the one place in the whole world where rats, where the rats get to live. (laughs) And I was like, that's that's it. And she summed it all up like that is it. And on planet Earth, like if you're a rat, if you had Rat Shangri-La, that's where you want to be. Yeah. The
0: sound design in Rats is very carefully uh, handled.
1: Um, Can you talk about what went into the sound design? We have a brilliant, genius, magical, insane editor named Pierre Tacall, who is uh, also an incredibly brilliant, talented composer who I mean, sound like sound is a big part to us. It's even, I mean, the way Pierre looks at scenes and cut scenes is it's even more to him. And whether it be music that he goes home and scores at night, or all the little bits of sound design that he layers in there, there's more sound design on this movie than I think there's ever been in any movie we've ever made. Yeah, I mean, and it's very nuanced too. But
3: we initially when we got into the edit, we kind of you know had like you know a very esoteric conversation of just you know what should the movie sound like, and just you know what are kind of. There's a lot of you know keys and chords that you hear throughout the film. They're a modulated in different way. And there's a ton of low end in the whole movie. Um, like there's more, definitely more low end in the whole movie. And also, kind of what the format allows us to do is, especially when you watch in a theater, we play around with, you know, everything's in What's the surrounds and the music swells, so you're always feeling it because that's the thing, you want that tension, like there's so much low end in the movie where it's like you just feel like there's something always underneath you and something that's always about to creep up behind you. Yeah. But it's a choice that we made right from the beginning of just, you know, what happens when we just kind of keep this tone throughout like a scene and what happens when we take it away?
2: We don't call 311 a thousand times about this corner right here. They come and said we don't have a rat problem. Right? right. Oh wow. we go. Thousands of rats running around. Thousands of oh, them. Keep that bag go. right there. And they come back. And if you come late at night, they running across the street and everything. Yeah, they said we don't have a rat problem. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. There's always more. Unbelievable. Ah, Look all the young ones. I'm... It's more rats in New York City than it is people. Wow, that monster. <laughs> I've more rats running out of here than how, how many rats
1: right here. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Look at all that food.
2: That is untouched Italian New York City bread. Listen, Saturday nights is the best night to come. See thousands of rats out here. You can stand across the street and just shoot
1: them we said this is this is our chance to really have fun with the sound design in a way that we've never been able to because it the the film and the format itself kind of would free us up to do that it enables us to kind of play and make it more scary and with horror films you know it's not only what you don't see but it's also what you hear so how how could we help make that sound an added frightening part of our of our character development and b- besides like musical sounds uh, you know you, you also hear like rat bones cracking you hear, like run, the, you hear them running through like ceiling tiles. You hear the little sounds of where they're around. It's great. So is is that stuff like natural sound that you're amplifying? Are you sometimes using post effects to create some of those things? It's a combination of both. Like, especially with like the rats breaking, like you, we had that natural sound that we then kind of sweetened up in the mix to really bring out the cracks and the popping of their necks as you heard that because it's just so good but there's times where you know we were filming where you could hear things run through the ceiling but it wasn't as good enough sound and so those are things where you layer in better to make it pop a bit more make it make it make the scurries kind of come out a bit more clear yeah heighten the reality we heighten the reality
0: so normally a hallmark of a Morgan Spurlock movie is that it has Morgan Spurlock uh, in it. And, yeah. uh, and and this doesn't. How would that decision get made? Because I, I,
1: I said, I want to make a good movie, so I'm not going to be <laughs> in it. That's listen when discovery came on board and wanted to put the film believe me there were a lot of conversations. We're like we think you should be in the movie and i'm like that's not the movie we're making it's a very different film i mean i think there's films that you know make sense for me to be in where i'm taking you on this vicarious journey and we're learning and experiencing things together and then and you can it feels like you could have made a rap movie that way totally we could have but it would have been a very different rap movie it would have been it would have been something else and it would I, not have been a horror movie no not at all and i think that uh i think that the film still has a lot of levity and humor in it, but I think it's much darker. I feel like that suddenly when I'm in there would have been a different piece. So uh, it was a decision we made from minute one that it w- this was not gonna be that type of a film. Yeah, save this ugly mug for something else, <laughs> like podcasts. <laughs> I've got a face I made for podcasts.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, uh, your face has done uh, pretty well as the lead of CNN's Inside Man and, and lots of other things. And it makes me wonder, given that you're, you're doing TV shows, you do web things, when you come back to do a feature length documentary film that
1: I'm not in, <laughs> that you're not in even, yeah. what is it about that
0: format that attracts you?
1: The, the feature form? films, yeah. I will just uh, Jeremy touched on it earlier. I think movies are forever. Movies, movies transcend borders. Movies are are a global experience, and they're one of those things that um, I came into this business and really kind of got the, the launch of my career as a, as a filmmaker and it's one of the things that I want to do forever. I, I think that we're in a good place. We're in a very fortunate place where we can make TV and we can make shorts and we can make branded content, but we can also still get to make movies. Besides
0: Rats, Morgan and Jeremy's company helped produce another film coming out this fall. Eagle Huntress, directed by Otto Bell, profiles a 13-year-old girl in western Mongolia named Ashal Pan who trains wild eagles that role is normally held by men in her culture. The film has stunning cinematography and narration by Daisy Ridley.
3: Meet Ashelpan. Pan. She's 13 years old. She's strong. She's brave. And she's a total natural. But when the competition ends, the real test begins.
0: I asked Morgan and Jeremy how they got involved with the project.
1: About about 18 months ago, it was about a year and a half before Sundance, where it premiered this past January, Otto Bell came to my office. He was connected to me through a mutual friend of ours, Doug Scott, who's at that time the president of Ogilvy Entertainment. Otto was working for Ogilvy Entertainment um, as an ad as a producer. You know, he's a one of the heads of creative there, but he'd been shooting this thing on the side, um, spending his own money. He'd kind of gotten as far as he could, and had he had about ten minutes of raw footage that he was just had put, had put together into like a little teaser. And so Doug said, would you be interested in seeing him? Talking to him, I'm like, of course, you know, have him come down. So he came to the office. He showed me this 10 minutes of footage. I was blown away. I showed it to Jeremy. And I was like, we have to make this movie. He was like, we're in. And so we basically came on at that point. Uh, I said, we'll help you raise the money. We'll get the crew. Um, We did all the post-production at our place in New York City. um, And we basically helped him make the movie and actually understand what it takes to kind of finish the film. And, and, and I think that, uh, sometimes you need that shepherd to help you through and, you know, and I was glad we got to be there with that film. It's a special movie. But also we also love about it, not in a dissimilar way to rats.
3: It's a very, you know, we talk about this all the time, like, Documentaries, I think, unfairly get lumped into one category. Mm-hmm. Documentaries first, and you know, how- And that's
1: all they are. It's a, and that's it's all they are. And uh, every doc, and whether it's a eagle hunters or it's rats, they're all documentaries.
3: Or a concert yeah. film, or, you know. Yeah. yeah, you know, and it's it's very frustrating for us, I think, just because regular narrative films get all the nuance they want, you know? It's, you can be a romance, you can be a thriller. It's yeah. exactly right. So, yeah. um, you know, and I think what we ultimately, what attracts us, you know, about keeping keeping with docs trailers how do you push those formats so that they that it's what those are first and what more is that like eagle huntress is a fairy tale it's a fairy tale before it's anything else and it just so happens to be true you know Mm -hmm. rats we look at it's a horror movie and it just so happens to be true so anytime we see films that come to us um you know that are like that you know it's 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 really exciting to work on projects like that
1: you know, the, I think the more that we get to tell stories like that, help filmmakers get movies like that made, get more out into the universe. I think the the better it is. I mean, I feel like I, I feel like I was really blessed after Supersize Me with not only the chance to make movies, but also to help other filmmakers. I want
0: to thank Morgan Spurlock and Jeremy Chilnick for speaking with me. You can watch their film Rats on the Discovery Channel. Before we go, I want to draw attention to an unfolding story in North Dakota where several people have been arrested for documenting protests of oil pipelines. Two prominent arrests were the actress Shailene Woodley, who is filming for Facebook Live, and journalist Amy Goodman, reporting for Democracy Now! Another documentary filmmaker arrested was Dea Schlossberg, a producer for Josh Fox, best known for Gasland. Dea produced his new film called How to Let Go of the World and Love All the Things Climate Can't Change. Josh Fox has posted video updates on his Facebook page about Dea's case. Here's a clip from one.
2: She was filming. She was not participating in. She was filming. Now, a lot of you understand that the Dakota Access Pipeline is being protested in Standing Rock. This was another action shutting down uh, pipelines that were along the United States-Canada border. Activists went to the emergency shutoff valves of tar sands pipelines and said this tar sands oil cannot come from Canada into the United States. These are emergency shutoff valves. It is a climate change emergency and we are shutting these pipelines down. Dea, my good friend, uh, one of my best friends in the world, was filming the event and she was arrested for being an accessory. She was not an accessory. She was the media. The media is allowed to report on actions that are happening. They nabbed her, they confiscated her camera, they took her footage. And it gets worse. She was escorted to the courthouse where she was charged with three felony charges that carry 45 years maximum sentence combined. Whatever you think about uh, the protests, um, journalists doing their job should not be arrested in the United States of America. Journalists doing their job should not have their footage confiscated. As, uh, as they would be in a dictatorial regime.
0: This case is chilling to say the least for documentary filmmakers. For more updates, watch the Facebook page of Josh Fox. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. Thanks to our team, series producer, Michael Scotty Jr., sound mixer, Kyle Murphy, web designer, Cross Strategy, Marketing Coordinator, Sarah Modo, Social Media Master, Jordan Smith. And Executive Producer, Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. If you're in New York City this fall, you'll find me on Tuesday nights at IFC Center for Stranger Than Fiction, presenting a retrospective of documentaries by Jonathan Demme running through November 1st. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe on iTunes. We'll be back next Thursday. Until then, you can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.